tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Early this week, Governor Josh Green announced his budget priorities, which includes an emphasis on health care. We are in a crisis dealing with a shortage of doctors and nurses and technicians that's only deepened with the pandemic. The Green administration supports a $50 million investment to help Hilo Medical Center. And joining us this morning is Dan Brinkman, CEO, to talk about the need for the East Hawaii residents and visitors. Good morning, Dan. Uh, Good morning, Catherine. You know, you just look at the headlines and, and, you know, we're not in a a, a good space. You know, we've got, uh, what, 600 traveling nurses in town. We've got the recent situation with the air ambulance crash, that, you know, tragic crash where we lost uh, you know, three of our, um, you know, medical professionals, and and you need a hospital. You need to expand your ICU. Yeah, absolutely. It's been, uh, it's certainly been a a sad week, and uh, our hearts go out to the folks at Hawaii Life Flight, that unfortunate accident. They've been part of our, really our ohana. They, uh, our team knows them when they come in and out and uh, transfer our patients, and it was definitely was a tragedy. And it certainly highlighted uh, the vulnerabilities we have on the neighbor island, how dependent we are on that transport system. And kudos to everybody for really responding and getting something in place uh, very quickly, and we were able to manage it. But um, absolutely highlights the need, I believe, to have more capacity on the neighbor islands. It'll help them and will help us as well as the state as a whole. Yes, and, and, you know, it was a patient, I believe, from Waimea, right, that was supposed to be uh, transported when that flight went down. But, gosh, you know, we're hearing about this need for the investment, and we've been talking about an expansion for Hilo Medical Center. I think I just was looking at a environmental assessment uh, on a new medical building um, that's in the works. Yes, uh, we've been, we've uh, really noticed that this was the issue really back in, 16, 17, 18, because the hospital is the exact same size it was when it was built in 1985. And you know, I give the analogy, if you know, use the starter home that you moved into and yet your family's grown and you keep adding uh, family and extended family after a while, you either you know, build a wing on your house or you know double up. And I think uh, that really is what has occurred over the years. Uh, we're at over capacity. We're completely full and have been um, really experiencing it greatly in the last year, but even before that uh, through COVID. And so uh, we've had uh, design plans. You know, any big project takes a number of years to put together. So we've been actually working on this pretty consistently since 2018. We had some hope there with uh, funding because uh, we it looked like we were going to get some of the federal uh, pandemic relief funds, but uh, we didn't quite qualify for the term, so we had to kind of start over. So yes, we've been on quite the journey here to add capacity at the hospital. It's it's very needed. I mean, we're in a fragile state. I mean, you know, looking back at the pandemic, what we saw happen with those, uh, you know, the early COVID cases in the uh, veterans' home, uh, you know, just highlighted, you know, what you know our community was going through and 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 the need for healthcare uh, officials i i don't know what the census count is you know this week for your hospital uh, or how many flying nurses that that you're dealing with well uh, just today we had uh, this morning we had 14 holds in our emergency room and we have 22 patients in our overflow unit so i guess put that put it putting that together i'm probably short today 30 beds a combination of you know beds or excuse me patients who need different units but this isn't an anomaly this has just been going on 
uh, really for the last almost 18 months at various levels and degrees, we have um, actually had to license 24 uh, emergency beds um, in our older, really actually quite old, uh, former nursing home and basically set up temporary accommodations for some of our patients. Uh, they're safe and cared for, but it's not ideal, and I think we can do better. And the expansion of the ICU, you're asking for, was it 18 more beds? Uh, yes, it's 18-bed ICU and uh, also 36 uh, med surge beds. Those are the beds in probably most hospitals have the most of those. That's when you're ill, but you're not critically ill. So both types of beds are quite needed. You know, uh, I know somebody who was in the ICU for six months. You know, you, you, you think of people that go in there and you hope that they're just there for, you know, a few days, a short time until they're stable again. But when you've got, let's say, patients like that that are in there for something really serious, I mean, that's tough if you don't have the bed, bed space. Well, absolutely. And, you know, I think that we're seeing, I think, some consequences of the, of the COVID pandemic, you know, that dragged on for a couple of years. People really put off care. I think there are some consequences for that. Our patients are sicker. And, you know, I think also we're seeing a demographic trend that really is going to impact our whole state as our baby boomer population is getting in the older stages of their life. They're getting in their late 60s and 70s into their, well, not quite into their 80s yet, but that's the time period when these 75 million Americans are going to uh, get the most hospital care, the most inpatient hospital care. That's just kind of... A lot of people have never been in the hospital until they get into their senior years, and I think we're going to see that. And I think this project, it doesn't just benefit Hilo. I think it substantially improves the overall capacity of the state. Uh, there aren't extra beds in the state. State We saw that during COVID. The Oahu hospitals are full. And if this is supported by really all the taxpayers, I think it benefits all you know, the citizens of Hawaii by making our health care infrastructure stronger. You know, we did have a scare with um, Mauna Loa, and I wondered, you know, gosh, if, you know, if people were to get hurt, uh, you know, where would they go? Because, you know, the, the inn is full at your hospital. You know, and, and uh, it's tough when, when you look across the state. You know, Maui's got issues. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, across, it's across the board for everybody. It is, and you know that's the thing that, understandably, is the challenge. Uh, you know, talking with different lawmakers and um, both executive and the legislative in the, leg the legislature. You know, there's so many priorities in the state. There, there are needs on Oahu, on Maui, and Kauai, and others. And you know, Hilo is one of them. I mean, it requires some tough choices. And you know, of course, I'm biased. I think that this is, you know, this is the time for for Hilo and Hilo Medical Center. But um, I absolutely have to acknowledge there are other needs across the state. Well, you know, I, I remember it was about a decade or so ago talking to someone with the Healthcare Association, and they said, you know, if you are visiting on the Big Island, you've got to be, uh, you've got, you've got to hope that you don't break a bone because they didn't have any uh, uh, orthopedic surgeons over there at the time, and things were very tight. And I was like, wow, and then you've got to get a flight over here to Oahu. Uh, but it certainly drives home, you know, just the need, uh, whether you're a resident, whether you're a visitor. Um, Healthcare is very important. Well, you know, you I'm, I'm kind, of glad, kind of glad that you mentioned that because it's not that way anymore, uh, thankfully. I think there's been a lot of work on all the neighbor islands, but, you know, I can just speak to Hawaii Island in that we have been able to uh, provide, I would say, you know, basic services. Like we have 
solid orthopedic coverage. We have solid cardiology coverage. You don't have to have second-rate health care, you know, if you're on a neighbor island. Mm -hmm. There's always going to be some, you know, specialized things that we shouldn't do on the neighbor islands, and you always do it like a medical center. Right. But but it has gotten better, uh, and it's really good because Oahu doesn't have the capacity it used to to just take our patients. I mean, I think we just really have to get neighbor island health care where it needs to be. Right. Well, I know you're uh, going to be going into some budget hearings uh, with the legislature starting next month, so good luck. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, and um, I hope I get a receptive audience. All right. Well, thank you so much. We have been thank talking you. to Dan Brinkman, CEO of the Halo Medical Center, about the need to expand the facility. risk of removing the tanks at the Navy's Red Hill Fuel Storage Facility is the subject of our reality check today. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Christina Jedra uh, has a story today uh, talking about that, and um, hopefully we will get her online. Uh, The situation is that uh, a a third-party review of the options that the military has um, uh, was just released yesterday, and uh, uh, the the issue is, uh, you know, whether or not the the best scenario is to leave those tanks in place. I believe we have uh, Christina online now. Good morning. I'm here. Hi, Catherine. Yeah. So so tell us about this. This report came out, and it says what? It's too dangerous to take this thing apart. Pretty much, uh, the Navy's consultant said that it would be extremely expensive, about half a billion dollars, to remove the Red Hill fuel facility. And, you know, people could die in the process is, is what the engineering consultant said, that it could destabilize the mountain, so endangering the workers that are, are doing that work, but also the surrounding community. It could, you know, cause uh, a catastrophe, it said, for, for the neighboring community. And when they built this thing, they did have several fatalities because it was a risky business. They did. Yeah, 17 men died in the process of Red Hill being built back in the 1940s, so uh, you know, it, it's a massive facility. It's 20 tanks, 25 stories high, as big as Aloha Tower, and there's 20 of them. So to dismantle them, it would leave these massive cavities in the lava rock. And, you know, whether it would crumble, who knows? But it's, uh, there's no easy answer here. Well, they were talking about possible reuse. Uh, and uh, I know that um, I think the Honolulu Board of Water Supply and, and the Department of Health is, has weighed in, um, you know, on the scenarios. Uh, but what can you tell us? Yeah, so exactly what the reuse would be is sort of unclear. The Navy hasn't weighed in other than its consultant saying there might be potential economic benefits, whether that would be like a museum or, you know, storing something else there. Um, There's been some talk of maybe storing water there. Ideas are being tossed around, but uh, there's not a whole lot of details about any of those. Um, But, you know, that is one option is to reuse it in some way that is definitely not for fuel. And the health department has made very clear they're not going to approve any plan that would um, allow a future use of fuel storage there. And the Navy has agreed to that, at least verbally. And the Honolulu Board of Water Supply uh, chief engineer, yeah, he he wants to make sure there's no <laughs> way that uh, fuel is going to get uh, 
stored there again ever because it's above that aquifer. Absolutely, yes. Um, he wants to make sure that the facility is drained of fuel and closed down as quickly as possible. Um, you know, whether anything, whether the tanks are, are coming out or, you know, are filled with something, um, you know, we'll have to wait and see. But that seems to be the recommendation of the Board of Water Supplies to fill it, you know, with maybe concrete or sand or something of the sort. You know, and, and uh, the story is getting lots of hits. Uh, folks are just a little concerned, you know, about uh, the Navy um, not cleaning up, you know, after uh, creating a mess. And, and uh, it's just interesting to hear, you know, what the public's thinking and weighing in on this. Absolutely. I think there's a lot of um, uncertainty and, like, wariness when it comes to the Navy here. And just a lack of trust um, among the public because... The Navy, you know, said for years that Red Hill was safe and that everything would be fine, and that turned out not to be true. So now when the Navy says, we're, you know, we promise we're never going to use it for fuel again, people don't necessarily believe that. They want physical assurances that it will be impossible for fuel to be stored at Red Hill going forward. Um, but the Navy's recommendation right now is just, you know, that they empty it and leave it. And, you know, for a lot of people... They're not totally comfortable with that. Right. All right. Well, lots to track. But thank you so much, Christina. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. Uh, read the full story. Visit civilbeat.org. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Time now for your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omoloka'i, olana'i, omau, okaholabe, ohava'i. Imagine if your teacher was a pop icon. For today's Backyard Quiz, we look at former pop singer and current educator Glenn Medeiros. Born and raised on Kauai, he won a local radio station contest at age 16 with the cover of George Benson's Nothing's Gonna Change My Love For You. His version took off and became an international sensation. Over the next 10 years, he recorded and released a string of hits, including the French and English duet, Friend, You Gave Me a Reason, with Elsa, and All I'm Missing Is You, with Ray Parker Jr. His singing career saw him release 11 albums, including a Christmas album. And although his breakout hit topped the charts internationally, it never reached number one on the Billboard charts. But he did have one tune reach the top. Here are a few bars. So for today's Backyard Quiz, which Glenn Medeiros song hit number one on the Billboard charts? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. And pick up a reusable HPR tote bag if you're the first one to get it right.
Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareetHawaii.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Mark Wolin, author of It Didn't Start With You. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how inherited family trauma shapes who we are and how to end the cycle. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. How far will people go to save our native species? Well, that's the question Savannah Harriman-Pote took to specialists with the Plant Extinction Prevention Program. Savannah joins us in studio this morning. Hi. Good morning. Happy to be here before the long weekend. Yes. And with a year of end coming up, I wanted to reach out to folks at the Plant Extinction Prevention Program, or PEP, just to talk about what challenges and maybe successes they had had in this year and what they were looking forward to in the upcoming year. And so the program has technicians across the archipelago who work in the field to protect native plants. And what I found in my discussions with a few of them was all of these folks are incredibly hardcore. <laughs> the work that they do involves, one, being a basically walking encyclopedia of plant knowledge because they have to be able to distinguish every species in the field so they can see if something's out of place or something's not doing well. And then the nature of the work means that they spend their days in Hawaii's most remote places, which are often only accessible by helicopter. Actually, one specialist that I spoke with, Ane Bakudis, has to repel off Molokai sea cliffs in order to conduct her surveys. I think most people don't know that we even do this kind of work. Probably even my own family, and I've been doing this for 30 years. And I've been in some really hairy situations where I have to ask myself, is this really worth it to save, you know, a species, to save the biodiversity for in Hawaii? Because I'm repelling off 2,000-foot sea cliffs. That's risky business. <laughs> yeah, I personally would be terrified. But remarkably, Bakuda said that that's not the hardest part of her job. What they struggle with more is difficulties with manpower, getting equipment that is reliable, and then these really unique challenges you wouldn't think of that have to do with the landscapes that they're in. So, for instance, Molokai does not have a facility that can propagate the rare plants that they collect. So they have to ship their cuttings and their fruit to one of the other islands so that they can be grown. And that creates this whole challenge with the USPS. And so that adds an, an added layer of challenge because you never know how long the post office is going to take to deliver something to its location. You have to bag it properly. So even if it's sitting for a day or three or four days in a plastic bag, it's not going to mold or deteriorate to the point where it can't be grown again. That just presents a, a huge challenge for us in getting the best quality seed or genetic material to a place to then grow it. 
Wow. Delays with the postal system. <laughs> and you didn't think at this time of year especially, you know, you go and you order a package and you expect it to be a Christmas present and then it's an incredibly rare species. <laughs> so for program prevention specialists like Bakudis, such hurdles have always been part of the job. They've just learn to work around them. But the program's mission to protect 400 endangered species has become even harder in the last handful of years as climate change is just creating new threats to our environment. So a fire, which we covered here at Hawaii Public Radio, just a month ago burned over 2,000 acres on West Maui. And Matt Kier is a botanist with the DLNR Division of Forestry and Wildlife. He works and coordinates the pet work that happens in the field. And he said that this fire signaled just a new kind of danger for Hawaii's rare plants. This fire made its way up into you know, Ohia Forest with plant communities uh, that are found in wetter areas of the islands and hadn't seen this kind of uh, wildfire before. And so we had several species that had not burned before that we think were impacted. That was a rough challenge for us in in 2022. They actually are just able to go back into that landscape now. They said it's safe to return and they're going, they say it's going to take years to figure out exactly what was lost in the fire. So we'll be following up with them to see what species remain. But the question is, is whether or not they have the resources to be effective as these challenges mount on top of one another. I know there's been some news uh, recently about the technology you're using with drones and a chainsaw, you know, uh, so they don't put, you know, people at risk when they're high up on the poly. Absolutely. So that's one of the exciting things that has come forward. And Ane, as well as Matt, did say there are successes every year. They're rediscovering plants that they thought were lost every year. So this work is incredibly fulfilling, but they actually only get about a million dollars a year, in the neighborhood of a million dollars, and they say that that's just enough money from private and state funds to be able to target about a third of Hawaii's endangered plants. So they have to leave a lot on the table. Yeah, and, and you know, knowing how hard I've, how hard it's been to propagate just things in my yard, I mean, I've tried to do cuttings with two dozen and they've all died. <laughs> so, you know, I can see if you're, you're talking about something rare and you go through all this effort to try and get this thing going to thrive, um, all the threats. And, oh. Right. It's something that they're hoping to see more support for. There is interest in a green fee. Governor Green has been a proponent of that, but we have yet to see if the le- legislature is going to be amenable to that idea to cons- support this type of conservation. Right. And we've got budget hearings starting in a few weeks, so I guess they've just got to give it their best shot and, and justify why we need to do this. Yeah. We'll be covering that as well. Thank right. you, Catherine. <laughs> Thanks so much. We've been talking to HPR reporter Savannah harriman Pope. Go to hawaiipublicradio.org to find out more. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School. On the next Fresh Air, we continue our series of some of our favorite interviews of the year with tennis great John McEnroe. He's known for his epic matches with Bjorn Borg, his outbursts at umpires, and his new careers as a TV tennis analyst and the narrator of the Netflix series Never Have I Ever. This year, he was the subject of a documentary. Join us. 
beginning this afternoon at 3, following Science Friday. Support for HPR comes from Magnolia Boutique and Gallery in Kahala Mall. Open daily with holiday gift ideas, such as original art, jewelry, and clothing by Hawaii artists. Online ordering at magnolia-hawaii.com. Homeshare Hawaii is hoping to solve the housing crunch and to build community one home at a time. The nonprofit matches individuals seeking a home with people who have a home to share. It believes home sharing is a way to not only address the high cost of housing, but also the health hazards of social isolation. Homeshare Hawaii says homeowners who live alone, frequently seniors, are more vulnerable to sickness, suicide, and Alzheimer's disease. And according to an AARP study, loneliness is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day and the impact of isolation at $7 billion a year to the cost of Medicare. Martha Ross is the director of HomeShare Hawaii. She sat down with the conversation Stephanie Hahn to explain how homeowners can connect with home seekers. We're recruiting homeowners and home seekers, and homeowners can even be renters if they have permission from their the actual homeowners. They can actually also bring in a home seeker or a roommate. They give us their applications, submit them. We do background checks, but we also do the interviews to see of all folks to see what are the things they're looking for in a housemate situation. Then we do home visits to make sure the house would be acceptable. Then we look for matches. And then we start with calling people and saying, we think we have a match for you. Would you like to meet them? We will go with you. There's no charge for the service. And at any step of the way, the person can say, this isn't, mm, doesn't feel right to start yet, or this isn't quite the right fit for me. And we just keep looking. And so it works really well that way. If they decide they're a match, they talk after they meet, then they do, if they'd like, a trial period. Home Seeker still keeps where they're currently living. What that tells you is one thing is we're not a crisis emergency housing situation, right? We show them a home sharing agreement sample, and it gives them some really things to think about. If you put this agreement in place, it increases the likelihood of success because you've gone through all the things that sometimes come up as issues for housemates and roommates. So by going through the agreement, you can kind of think of those things ahead of time and come to an understanding. We're for sure uh, six months or more. Many of the people we talk to are interested in a year or more. And so once they actually do decide to live together, home share, then we follow up quarterly for a year. We give a call, has something changed in the circumstances? And we're really looking for people that we're, we aren't able to put together, like it's not home caring. For example, Kapuna are primarily the homeowners or seniors. They still have to be independent, though they might not want to live alone any longer. Maybe they're living alone, maybe family is farther away or is too busy, and they just would like to have someone live in the house, help with some chores. So it could be rent a small affordable rent, chores, or some combination of the two, and that's part of their agreement. That's kind of how it works, and it's really about helping seniors live 
in their own home longer. They can get a small income, supplemental income, or just help with chores and everything from yard work maybe, or if not that much, little light housekeeping help or taking the trash to the end of the driveway, those kinds of things, Um, errands. Then it helps the other person that either get affordable rent. We've even had some people, uh, they've lost their uh, spouse and their mortgage is paid. They really just want someone they're in the home with them. So they're not looking to charge rent. They might say, you know, share utilities. So we've had a real range of things. And we're really recruiting homeowners right now. So how is the program here in Hawaii different or similar to the one that's run on the mainland? It is very similar in in terms of we used all their best, you know, what they thought was successful. But we also shaped it for Hawaii. For example, right up front, we ask, is there are there family members that maybe even you don't live with, but they'd like to participate so they know what's happening? Because the family often wants to know. So that's one piece. It's also different in that in Hawaii, um, well, of course, affordable rent is a big issue for people. But part two is maybe family lives on a different island, so they're alone. And so it's the travel is a little harder. Even for Hawaii, not a brand new concept, because in the 30s and 40s, there's, there used to be borders. People took in borders. I actually did try it out. I, was, I had never had a roommate since college, right? Just about to turn 66, and I decided I'd bring someone in. And partially because people used to ask me, well, have you done it? Now I can say, yes, I did, and it's worked great. And it's somebody that's 24, right? So it's that intergenerational concept. She actually has social work background, as do I. So I can share a lot about the networks and, and the programs when she was job hunting, right? And then I get to hear all the current culture, meet her friends, and kind of know what's going on that way. And, and then she helps a lot with some of the things. Sometimes it's a little harder to change light bulbs, right? You Standing on ladders is a little bit more shaky these days. Things like that, really helpful. And that was Martha Ross of HomeShare Hawaii. With Honolulu being one of the most expensive places to rent a home in the U.S., and over 20% of the state's population uh, age 60 or over, according to a University of Hawaii study, our state is well poised to take advantage of this type of program. Home sharing is something uh, Caroline Kunitaki did after finishing college and moving to a new town. She reflects on her experience as a young person and what she now thinks about the idea of home. I had just finished graduate school and I was new to Seattle and I needed some place to live that didn't cost too much. I was still looking for a job. My roommate, who was 99 years old, name was Beth, and she was amazing. Uh, she was so alert and capable and willing to try new things. I mean, she had a lot of lovely family members, but she decided to have someone live in her home because she didn't want to end up disrupting <laughs> disrupting her family dynamics. <laughs> so it was best to have someone that was not a family member living inside of her home. And I was astounded by her savvy and her strength as far as really holding on to the parts of her life that she really, really enjoyed. And I thought that was very inspirational. So what are the challenges and what do you see are the benefits? By opening up home sharing 
arrangements, that really opens up the possibility for more rental agreements to occur in a place where they may not have enough affordable housing. I think the other benefit is really having an opportunity to learn about a person that is older than you and to find out what their life experiences have been like. Uh, You really have an opportunity to become friends with someone that might be 20 to even 30, maybe even 40 years older than you. And their life experiences are very valuable. You can learn a lot. Do you now consider and having a young renter? Oh, sure. Absolutely. I don't have any children. The sibling that I have is in another country. It's really important to be very realistic in terms of planning what you'll need as a senior that you need to plan for while you're still capable. So the answer is yes, I would be open to it. I think having participated as the renter living in someone else's home, a senior's home, I probably am more open to that idea because I experienced it myself. So how did you have to reframe an idea of what a home is or what a home means? I believe a home is a space in which a person feels as though they belong and they don't feel the threat or worry of being evicted. I think that's one of the greatest fears for people who are renters is that there's no guarantee you're going to have that space as a rental next year because the owner can sell at any moment and tough luck for you. I've seen that happen more than once. And I believe that home, whether it's in a rental situation or in an actual you know, fee simple type of property where you actually own the home, it's a place in which you feel as though you really belong. You're not worried about getting kicked out anytime soon or unexpectedly. And that there is a support system, whether that is within your own home or outside of that, to meet your very basic need. I believe home is a place in which you share with others inside of your home or with your community. That was Home Share Hawaii volunteer Carolyn Kunitaki. Prior to that, Martha Ross, director of Home Share Hawaii. They were talking to HPR Stephanie Hahn. Ross invites homeowners or renters who have permission from their landlord to consider home sharing as a way to experience the full benefits of home. We'll have links to more information on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Give what you can and accept what you need. Creating Ohana and community. We're with you whenever you step of the way. For today's Backyard Quiz, we're talking about an 80s pop star with Hawaii roots. Today, he's president of St. Louis School in Honolulu, where he joined as principal in 2015. But Glenn Medeiros had a different career before his current students were even born. As a pop singer, he had a number of hits during the late 1980s and 90s, and he continued as a lyricist with over 200 songwriting credits to his name. His breakout hit was a cover of George Benson's 
Nothing's Gonna Change My Love for You. In 1986, a teenage Maderos covered the song for a local radio station contest and won. He recorded it, and the hit song caught fire, topping the UK charts in 1988. However, it only reached number 12 on the Billboard Hot 100 charts, one of his seven to break the top 100. But only one of his songs reached number one, his duet with Bobby Brown, She Ain't Worth It. And we had a winner today, a caller from Maui. Congrats to you. And that's today's quiz. If you have one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Meals on Wheels, committed to delivering meals and providing human connection to homebound kupuna during the holidays and throughout the year. Learn more about volunteering and giving programs at hmow.org. The film Love Actually has been a holiday staple for nearly 20 years. What makes it so special? It's the magic, right? There could be more to life, Mm. and you can get that from, like, Christmas magic. You can also get it from dark magic, too. That's what I like. (laughs) The legacy of Love Actually and the power of holiday movie magic. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon following Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. With a selection of gifts, publications, jewelry, and handcrafted goods at the HOMA shop, all proceeds benefit museum programs and exhibitions, open during museum hours. Salute to Seaweed this week is capped off with learning about some groundbreaking science with Limu. The more we know, the more we can help it grow. When we last checked in with University of Hawaii botanist Celia Smith a few years back, she was on a mission to spread the word about the good deeds of Isabella Abbott, who many regard as the first lady of Limu. And we'll get more, uh, we'll get back to more of her story. But we wanted to know about the Limu research that Smith's been busy with. It stretches across our island state, and Smith recalled she was thrilled when the governor declared 2022 the year of Limu. I'd been hoping that this would happen for a while because there had been discussions and rumblings and rumors, but it was really just a month before in the tail end of 2021 that it seemed to really have the gravitas that it needed to go forward. And so I was thrilled. I think this is a really important turning point in the management of marine resources here in the state for the people of this place to declare that Limu are important to the point that there's a nomination process apparently underway also for one of our native Limu to be declared the state Limu. As we have the state fish and tree and year of the reef and all of that, we finally might be through the community grassroots efforts able to raise these important plants to the statue that they need from the cultural perspective, from the scientific perspective, the ecological perspective, from their many roles that they play on green. Well, there you go. (laughs) Finally. Exactly. Finally. And I think, frankly, Catherine, if it had come from the university, it wouldn't, that whole approach would not have been nearly as effective as coming from the grassroots there are over 20 different groups that work with Limu. The Hana community has been having a Limu festival. They're on their 11th Limu festival, I believe. 
And so there have been pockets of strong support and clear vision for the need for this as a way of marking the Hawaiian community as unique in the Pacific. It's adoration, love, and affection, as well as enjoyment in eating these plants is clear. And so it is a way that we can start to bring some balance compared to the mainland forces that tend to run a lot of the management on, on our reefs here than only pay attention to coral and fish. But Limu so, needs it more than just its uh, 20 seconds of fame. <laughs> That's right, exactly right. Well, you know, yeah. over the years, you know, we've done stories with you about your research with Limu. Uh, what are you working mm-hmm. on now? So at this point, I have two projects, one that's been finished for about a year, and I'm trying to find time to write the papers that should come from it. That study was commissioned by the ledge, actually, as part of the wastewater funding that was tied to Act 125. And then Act 132, our project was to use seaweeds as a probe for where wastewater from cesspools and septic tanks might actually be coming into the coastline. And so this was a project that we launched in the middle of COVID to survey areas that had been identified as potential targets for contamination by pollutants, high nutrients, and all the pathogens that come with wastewater that's untreated. We have 88 million gallons, no, sorry, 55 million gallons a day going into our ground that enters into the groundwater and flows to our coast. It's a staggering amount of pollution. The work that we did was efficient. We got four islands sampled. We met all of our goals except for travel to Kauai, where we were hampered by COVID travel restrictions. And in the process, we can now map out the density of cesspools in an area and tell off of our data analysis, we can predict how much nutrient coming in from the wastewater signal or the wastewater sources from the cesspools that are Malka of these beach areas. That is an it's a in situ assessment across all the main Hawaiian islands except Molokai and I informs the policy as it moves forward for management of cesspools and septic tanks. That way we've got hard data of so when they make oh. a move to close these cesspools on the coastline, yes. we have the numbers. Exactly. It's not just guess A lot of people are unwilling to accept a model. We tested the models, and we have a p-value. You know, the smaller the number, the more significant the finding. Our p-value is 10 to the minus 16. It's a very, very, very small number, which means we really, really, really have a strong relationship established between cesspools and the wastewater that comes to the coastline as a result of the study. So that's two years of my life in managing that with teams of people across Hawaii Island, Maui, Oahu, and small team on Kauai. And it felt like it was a way that we could use the native and the invasive plant algae that we have on our coastlines to report back where the wastewater was. In many of these places we were sampling, the algae we were actually sampling were the invasive species that don't belong here but thrive under those nutrient, elevated nutrient conditions. So that's a little window of realization that as these cesspools are slowly closed over the next period of time by 2050, they are expected to be out by law. Our coastlines could be healed of invasive algae simply from taking that unfortunate extra nutrient out of the ecosystem. 
Well, you know, we have watched our patches of limu dwindle, I mean, mm-hmm. areas that were abundant, you know, are scarce now. Mm-hmm. There's so many pressures on our uh, marine plant life. That's marine right. Algae. And that is a point of concern, and the best way to get the evidence and data that we need is to build partnerships with the Kua folks and identify the algae, that, the limo that they are worried about as vulnerable to being lost, and study them and contribute the science that's helpful in diagnosing what might be missing from the ecosystem or what might be present that's unfortunate. And with that, we have a really strong chance of merging science and culture in a way that's not common across the U.S., but is entirely appropriate here. Because, of course, to be a fan of these resources mean that you observe them in your day-to-day rhythms. You're using that process of chemo to observe and, and understand. The Native Hawaiian community understands how these plants change over seasons. They understand how the plants grow. We can give them some numbers to that and maybe unfold some surprises as well that could help keep the natives intact, those native communities. So whether it's reforesting and restoring the reefs with uh, more of the, the native limu and getting rid of the invasive limu or using the data to understand what's happening mauka exactly Um, everything on the land ends up in the sea i've been told and so this is a chance to really use science for its best goals which is to help identify what uh, things need to be changed so that we can all move forward the second project is one that's just being wrapped up right now we're actively working on manuscripts for it it's one where we've taken a pair of Lumo one native, one invasive, and we've grown them in the lab under control conditions to push the plants to better understand how well they can thrive under the widest range of parameters that the Hawaiian ecosystems provide, like the full range of salinities that our Lumo patches would get with some marine groundwater discharge where fresh water comes in from the island into the coast. We've heated them up and we've grown them at different temperatures with these lowered salinities. We've added appropriate nutrients for these SGDs, these submarine groundwater discharge plumes. And so with that, we've got data that's opening a window to realize that at least the pair that we studied, the invasive alga, which has piled up on Maui in hip-deep piles that extend over long stretches of beach, that plant is intolerant of native ecosystem parameters in the fullest range. It doesn't grow. Most of the tissue actually dies. The native species we were testing, Limopalahalaha, thrives under those nutrient salinity combinations that are typical of the submarine groundwater discharge. Suddenly, we have an Achilles heel, if you will, for the invasive that we didn't even understand was in place at the start of this research. So we're armed but, with more information. Exactly. And suddenly it now becomes really important to keep Hippia musiformis, the alga, the invasive I was talking about, to keep that out of our coastlines. We need to protect the submarine groundwater discharge in the coastal areas so that the salinities in those areas stay low like they are in the native ecosystem. So we know what variables we need to control. Right. And, you know, SGD is essentially a big source of drinking water. It's pumped. It gets used for a lot of different 
agricultural purposes. We're talking about bringing the protection of native ecosystems so that traditional subsistence collecting can be protected. That means we have to start to think about the coastal communities when we talk about pumping. Well, you know, as we close out this year, we're hopeful for Mm -hmm. 2023 uh, and Mm -hmm. all the efforts that we're now seeing uh, take hold to kind of elevate Limu and its place uh, in our culture, in our environment. That must make you feel gratified, though, hopeful. Absolutely. In fact, I've been more excited in these last few years since I've last talked with you than I have been in a long time because we're starting to see the efforts that have been put in place to understand how invasive algae work. We're finally getting to a point of some sophistication that we didn't have before. None of the literature in the studies of hypnia worldwide have identified this kind of salinity intolerance, for instance. And so it makes perfect sense for us here. And that is, to me, tremendously gratifying, tremendously satisfying to be able to point to the weaknesses the invasives have and the strengths that the natives have and tie those to preservation of coastal ecosystems, to me, is the kind of science that I had dreamed about being able to contribute long ago when I was hired as a young assistant professor. It's only taken 30 years, (laughs) but very gratifying. Well, you know, I bet you Isabella Abbott is uh, smiling down at the progress that we've made. I mean, when we last talked, you were trying to elevate, you know, her work in people's eyes. That Hawaiian woman set us a track record for us and our ability to focus on these native ecosystems that still stands as an outstanding achievement. And to honor her, we are nearly completed with an effort on Manoa campus to name our new School of Life Sciences, the newest science building to be built on the Manoa campus in the last 20 years, to name that building after her. I think for the number of biology majors, marine biology majors, microbiology majors who are from Hawaiian communities or from local communities and attend Manoa and take classes and labs in a building named after Isabella Abbott, it would be a tremendously uplifting experience for them to see someone who looks like them, operated like them as a Manoa undergrad. (laughs) She was a botany undergrad. She was a writer for the Kaleo, the campus newspaper. To have someone like that elevated and I have a building named after her would be a tremendous goal, a tremendous accomplishment for Manoa as we strive to be a Hawaiian place of learning. All right. Well, thank you very much, Celia Smith, for underscoring the importance of, of the work uh, that many in our community do uh, just for the love of Limu. For the love of Limu. Thank you so much, Catherine. It's a, always a pleasure to chat with you. And that was Celia Smith, UH botanist, who studies with Limu, helping us understand the effect of uh, coastal cesspools on our reefs so we can better protect our nearshore ecosystems. And so we close out Limu Week with a salute to Isabella Abbott, affectionately known as Auntie Izzy to some. She was homegrown, our first native Hawaiian ethnobotanist, and the first to receive national recognition for her work with Limu. That's it for this Aloha Friday. 
Coming up next week, a Hanaho show for good things to eat and drink. Call or talk back line. Leave us your comments. 808-792-8217. Write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can listen back to our shows on the conversation page on HPR or sign up for the conversation of podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you tune in. Russell Subiano, Lillian Song, Savannah Harriman-Pote, and Stephanie Hahn, all part of the team that puts the show together. John DeMello wrote the backyard quiz, Oli, and our theme music, courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Have a wonderful Christmas, everybody, and pick up the conversation with a Hanaho show on Monday. Intro to the home share thing because the words got uh, that it believes homes herring. I was like, ah! <laughs> okay, yeah. Okay. 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 Oh, okay. All right. Where is he? Where is that? No, okay. HomeShare Hawaii is hoping to solve the housing crunch and to build community one home at a time. The nonprofit matches individuals seeking a home with people who have a home to share. It believes home sharing is a way to not only address the high cost of housing, but also the health hazards of social isolation. Is that okay? All right. Sorry about that. Okay. Promo? Okay. Hawaii had one of the greatest sort of diversities of birds in the world of unique things that evolved here, and we've lost many of them. Coming up on the conversation, it's an SOS for our native birds. And then go to the side. Hawaii had one of the greatest sort of diversities of birds in the world of unique things that evolved here, and we've lost many of them. But scientists are hopeful as federal partners rally to save our feathered friends from the brink of no return. That's today at 11 on The Conversation on HPR1. Okay. Coming up on The Conversation, it's an SOS for our native birds. Hawaii had one of the greatest sort of diversities of birds in the world of unique things that evolved here, and we've lost many of them. But scientists are hopeful as federal partners rally to save our feathered friends from the brink of no return. That's today at 11 on The Conversation on HPR1. That's tomorrow on The Conversation on HPR1.